And if you would please take out your copies of God's Word this morning as we jump into our passage of Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, as we are back into our chapter-by-chapter examination of this wonderful gospel. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. Listen carefully, for this is God's word. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he, that is Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And when he invited you, both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us ask our God's blessing on this passage before we dive into it. Oh God. We do ask that you would be with us today. We pray for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see this passage for what it is, divine truth meant to guide us today. I pray that I would preach it accurately and well, and I pray that we would listen and apply to our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. People in all sections of the world relentlessly pursue status. The reality of this has not come about as a new thing in our time. But as we can see in this passage, there have been ways that people have been trying to climb to the top for as long as there have been humans and places to climb. Back then, honor and social recognition were gained at the dining table in front of other people. But that looks different today. Today, social recognition may be what, your, what phone you are talking on. It's amazing how they'll always update the phone to look differently so everyone else can see instead of you. What sort of logo we have on our cars or any other matters of status gaining. Status can even be gained by accentuating your lack of status. We can put ourselves, we can put ourselves down in front of others in hopes that they'll offer a competing, countering compliment Or we can lean into a cultural victim status in hopes of greater political power. Or even being mad at people that that do these sorts of power grabs and say, well, at least I'm not like that. 
All of these things are means of us trying to grab some sort of status, trying to climb some sort of ladder. But it's so much the way that the world works, we don't even realize we're doing it. We're fish swimming through the waters of self-exaltation as the only way to get ahead of the world. That unless you go out and grab it, no one is going to give it to you. Now, unfortunately, when what's worse, as commentators of this passage have pointed out, that we can feel that this is how Jesus works too. That this is how Christianity works. That it's a matter of making sure that our status is high enough in front of God so that we might be, be impressive to him and thus be granted a higher seat. This passage is here to end all of those thoughts. Jesus is here to put those self-exalting waters that we swim through under his feet as he shows us the way. We're going to be looking at two points today, as you can see in your outline that's been inserted in the bulletin to follow along. The first point is that Christ is worthy of highest honor. Christ is worthy of highest honor. And then secondly, is that we do not assume honor for ourselves. We do not assume honor for ourselves. Now, it's been a, a little while since we've been in the Gospel of Luke. We've had our Easter celebration, and then last week we looked at our um, elder and deacon um, characteristics. But what I would want to show us is just as by way of review, we've been going through this Gospel, and we've been getting a portrait of who Jesus is. We have seen him in these early chapters as the God-man fully God and fully man together. And we've seen how he has gained an authority to teach, to heal, and to rule over both the created world and the spiritual world like no one else. We've seen now, we were going through this gospel as we got this portrait of who Christ is in the chapters nine and following, we've seen a turn that Jesus is on his way to fulfill his mission, to be about his father's business, to go to the cross. And on the way to this cross, we're seeing more and more conflicts with the Pharisees working his way there. And indeed, far from beating Jesus through these conflicts with the Pharisees, they are assisting Jesus to draw out this contrast between the best that man can do and the standard of perfection that Jesus is. We've seen how Jesus has beaten the Pharisees using the scriptures and even their own Pharisaical logic to show what God really meant with his word. And most recently, we saw in our previous chapter, we were reminded of all of these realities that we've seen, this portrait of Jesus and his teachings we saw Jesus, the true master, the healer who healed the woman who was bent over for nearly 20 years, even on the Sabbath. We'll come back to that. He was rendering these Pharisees and these lawyers very angry but unable to answer Jesus' perfect actions. And then we were reminded in that previous chapter that there is only one way to heaven, and it's through a very narrow gate. And here in chapter 14, we're going to see one of the obstacles from entering into that gate, an obstacle to keep us from seeing Christ as we need to, an obstacle that keeps us from realizing how much we need 
Jesus. So here in chapter 14, Luke raises the curtain on this new scene. Here is a Sabbath meal that the Pharisees have invited Jesus to come to. It's important to note that Jesus comes to the Pharisees and the religious as well. He did eat with the tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, but he also ate with those that would have been esteemed religious figures and is willing to bring the gospel to any and to all who will listen. Here, this and being invited to this Sabbath meal would have been an honor, but the preparations for this Sabbath would have been very closely attended to. The Pharisees would have made sure that their meal that was going to be consumed that day, probably a meal of bread, maybe a midday meal, would have been prepared the day before. You don't want to do any work on the Sabbath day. There's no kneading of bread or lighting of fires. All that would have to be reserved for the previous day. So the Pharisees are very concerned about how this Sabbath meal is being prepared. And they've brought Jesus into this meal to enjoy this with them. But there's something insidious going on. Yes, the Pharisees care very much about the Sabbath, but right now they are very much hoping it's about to be broken. They are really hoping that that Jesus will do something, that they can finally catch him in and get rid of this teacher who has been exposing their hypocrisy forever. That's why we see here in verse one that they were watching him carefully, literally looking around to see if they can find something to accuse Jesus of. And behold, in verse two, there's a guest that's unlike all the other guests that have been brought into this honored lunch. There was a man before him who had dropsy here in verse two. Dropsy was a condition that we know now as edema, which is the swelling of tissues would have been in the limbs or the stomach, would have been a retaining of fluid in a person's body, likely due to some sort of organ failure. This man was a torturous part of this condition as though they were swollen with fluid, they were constantly thirsty. And no matter how much they would drink, they were always feeling like they needed more. What's worse is that this disease also came with an added shame and stigma. It was associated with people who were gluttonous and greedy. And it was almost viewed as some sort of punishment for those that had but constantly wanted more. Now their bodies were cursed to have that same outward affliction. It would be full of something but constantly needing more. So here he is, happens to be at this meal. I, along with other commentators, think that he is a plant. That he is someone that the Pharisees have brought into with the hope of using him to get to Jesus. That's why here in verse three, it says, and Jesus responded to the lawyers. The lawyers haven't said anything. It's been a wordless question. Are you going to heal someone on the Sabbath in front of us? We've seen you do that in the synagogue in front of all these other people, but will you do that in front of us, the people who are known for our Sabbath keeping? Sadly for the Pharisees, nothing seems to have changed for them. For them, the idea is that you are not supposed to relieve suffering on a day of rest. They were angry in the previous chapter when Jesus healed the woman who was bent over for 18 years on the Sabbath. And they intend to be angry again. 
with this. Because even though the Pharisees haven't changed, they know Jesus hasn't changed either. That he is still the merciful God who will bring healing. Now, before Jesus heals this man, he asks them if it is unlawful for him to heal on the Sabbath day. That's what we see here in verse 3. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And here he puts the Pharisees in an impossible position by asking them this question. Because if they say, no, there's nothing wrong with you healing on the Sabbath, well, then their whole lunch is a bust. Here they got all this planning set up, and then all Jesus turns out is he's right within his legal right to do this. Miscalculation on their part. But if they say, yes, it is unlawful for you to heal on the Sabbath day, now they have to look like the heartless legalists that they are. And would have to admit in front of their man here that we've just brought you here to tease a healing, but that this is not going to happen. So all they can do is just be silent in verse 4. So Jesus takes him, grabs hold of him, heals him, and sends him away. The fluid dries up, the organ that is failing is repaired, and his man's shame is removed by a touch of Jesus' hand. And he sends him away. And here in verse 5, Jesus turns the question on to them. And he says, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Here, Jesus reframes the question. The Sabbath day in the scriptures was never supposed to be an occasion to keep you from doing good. That was never God's intention. But the Pharisees, in order to exalt themselves or to make themselves appear holier, had built all these other laws around this that they would be able to keep, but others would not. But here Jesus points out to them that when it's their son or their ox, when, it's, when they have something to deal with it, well, then all of a sudden those man-made rules aren't so important, are they? It's my son. I'm not going to let him fall down a well. Why would I let some human suffering go on during the Sabbath day? And Jesus says, of course. Makes no difference whether or not this is your son or a son of Abraham or a Gentile. There, there is nothing that would keep ministry from being done on the Sabbath. So here, as we can see in this passage, only Christ is exalted in this section. The Pharisees have gained nothing while Christ has shown himself to be the true interpreter of the Sabbath, the true teacher of the Bible, and is the one who is able to carry out healing. The Pharisees wouldn't have been able to heal this man if, even if they wanted to. And further, the only thing that they have prided themselves on, which is to keep the Sabbath law, they were willing to sacrifice their own supposedly sacred tradition if it meant tearing down Jesus. The curtain is pulled back and the Pharisees are exposed for what they are. Now we can be easily tempted to do the same thing. It's very easy for us to pray, Lord, thank you that I am not like those smug Pharisees. We can fall into the same trap. 
we can fall into the problem of exalting our doctrine to just a philosophical set of questions that other people have to get right and ignore love. Now, that's not to say that doctrine is not important. It is. But, the, but you have not understood what Jesus is saying if this takes away your ability to love others, to sacrifice for other people, to reach out to those who are needy. Here, doctrine and love, as Jesus shows us, are not mutually exclusive. That this is very important. Now, what we're going to see here in this second part, we're going to see more of how Jesus is worthy of true exaltation. And we're going to see this here in our second point, that we do not assume honor for ourselves. So, with Christ clearly undefeated, been unable even with their own rules, the Pharisees cannot take out Jesus. Then they turn to the only other people that they can beat, and that is each other. Look here in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Here, as I mentioned earlier, when the dinner bell rings, each person is trying to jockey for the best seat in the house. Because where you sat was an indication of where you stood in the places in the community. When people would invite for a dinner, the host would determine who sat where. And the person to the right of the host was the most honored, to the left was the second most honored, and it would continue down the table. The further away you were from the host, the least position you had. Because at that time, they didn't have Facebook. So there was no other way to socially rank other than these public dinners. It's astonishing that this practice has continued even until my childhood. For those of you that remember ye old days of the internet in the early 2000s, we had this website. It was the creepier predecessor of Facebook. It was known as MySpace. On this thing, and I can't believe we did this to ourselves, you had on the side your top eight friends in ranked order that you put in front of everyone else. You can only imagine the level of middle school playground drama that ensued after this. But here, this was done exactly the same way. People were ranked. And you could hope to perhaps advance your station, if seats were assigned or not, to hope to maybe, as you're talking to the host, slowly work your way to the dinner table following him in hopes that he'll just let you sit down. And maybe the person who is actually supposed to sit there doesn't show up. And you can gain a bit more social standing by where you are sitting at the dinner table. Now Jesus notices all of this and begins to teach the Pharisees something. Here, Jesus cites the very real possibility that the most honored guests would be fashionably late. This existed at that time. And here Jesus gives us, starting in verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Here this would have been a real possibility. You got there early, you tried to 
get squatter's rights on the most honored seat, but the most honored guest is going to come and remove you from that spot. At that point, there would only be the lowest seat left, because who's going to take the lowest seat? And now you're going to have to, in front of everybody, get up and walk all the way down that exceedingly long table, it seems, to sit down at the end. I remember seeing this happen at a show once. A man was uh, doing a comedy special, and there were people sitting on the front row, but they didn't have tickets for that assigned seating. Two people came to get their claimed seats that they had that they actually had tickets for. And as the two people came, four people got up and had to leave. And worse, in front of everybody else, the comedian noticed this and pointed it out to everybody else. He looked at them and he said, two people came and four of you had to leave? What, were you sharing a seat? Times are tough. As they all got up and take their shame back out of the theater. Instead, what Jesus offers here is a different path. Jesus gives a counterintuitive for that culture's way to approach seating. Jesus says, instead of taking the high seat and risk getting dismissed from it, take the low seat, and it's likely that you will get moved up and be honored in front of everyone. And then Jesus gives this proverb-like statement here in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the passive voice here. They are not, it doesn't say for everyone who, who, who exalts himself will humble himself. It says whoever hum, who exalts himself will be humbled. Who's doing the humbling? Who's doing the exalting? This is ultimately, this is God. This is what he's referring to. Now we may say, why is Jesus giving advice like this? Doesn't this seem like a kind of crass way to get status? Isn't this seeming like a false humility that Jesus is asking us to take? Like, oh, yes, I'll take the lowest seat in hopes I'll get the big one. You know, that's not what Jesus is offering to us here. Jesus is talking a lot about a lot more, as he usually does, than just about dinnertime seating. What he's talking about is the attitude of the heart that would lead to this sort of a decision. Indeed, as we're going to see next week, that there are far more important things that we need to be concerned about than where we stand at the dinner table, but where we stand before God. Because there is a judgment that is coming that only Christ can save us from. The only way to get to the heavenly banquet is by humbly admitting what we know is true that we are great sinners in need of a savior. We have to reckon with the fact that we could never be invited to a dinner like that in heaven, much less have an exalted seat at that table. There are those of us that can think that we are somehow in, that we are owed something by God to not only have a seat in heaven, but to have a high one. Because look at all that I've done. This is a particular temptation for ministers we can look at our roles and the, our day-to-day tasks and assume that we deserve something from God. But that's not the case. Even to sit under the heavenly table and eat the crumbs that fall from it would be a blessing and an honor beyond our wildest hopes. We wouldn't presume to walk into a billionaire's house and request dinner 
So why do we think that we would deserve to walk into heaven and receive communion with God? If we were to consider only our own lives or even our own ability to make it to heaven, such a request would be laughable. Unless, of course, we were invited. You see, Christ is able to make this statement in verse 11 for everyone who humbles, exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Christ has lived this statement more than any of us ever could. Because Christ was as exalted as he could possibly be. At one point, the Son of God was in heaven being surrounded by angels singing his praise all times. But then Jesus takes this incredible humiliation and brings himself down to our world and lives as one of us. And he does not live as a king. doesn't even live as middle class. He was without a home, wandered from place to place, and lived in a sinful world. And he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserved to die in order to give us his seat at that table. We will sit in the chair that Jesus bought for us at dinner because we have been united to him. Look with me in Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. And look at verse four. Why is it that we are able to make it to this heavenly table? It's in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This humiliation that Christ has endured that was captured so well in that old hymn that he left his father's throne above so free and so infinite his grace. He emptied himself so great his love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be? For thou, my Lord, shouldst die for me. And that promise in verse 11 was held true. Christ humbled himself more than any other being ever could and is now exalted higher than any other being could. How could any of us be proud of ourselves in light of what Jesus has done? So here, when Jesus gives us this advice that we be humbled, it's not just at dinner, but it's at our whole lives that we recognize that we are not worthy of forgiveness for Jesus. We are not worthy that he would die for us on the cross. We are not worthy that he would give us his righteousness 
And we are not worthy that he would seat us in heavenly places to dine at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're not worthy of any of this, but he humbled himself for us. Now, are we going to say as followers of Christ, united to Christ, that our path would look any different? I'm not saying that we're called to die on a cross necessarily, but we are called to humble ourselves. So how do we do that? How do we apply what we've seen here in this passage? Well, for one, we must be honest with who we really are. We are prideful people that jockey for position over other people. Because that can be done in a variety of ways. Even ways that seem holy. We can be overly critical and slap people down for misunderstandings very small. Or as Philip Ryken points out, that we ourselves are guilty of sinful pride whenever we step in front of others who want the same thing that we want. We can be prideful when we secretly rejoice in the downfall of a rival. It is pride when we reflect on our own reputation or exaggerate our accomplishments or encourage someone to speak our praise. And we are equally guilty of the same sin, Riken continues, whenever we fail to get the place we think we deserve and then resent it. It's very easy to do. And I, as I was preparing this message, I remembered my own pride that previous week and how I had done this myself. I was on a Zoom call with a bunch of other pastors and we have a mentor meeting with a prominent pastor in Birmingham. And he had mentioned to us a book that he wanted us to go through. So I quick checked to make sure it was available on Amazon. And there are about nine guys in our mentor group and I saw there were only three copies left on Amazon. And I, during the meeting, probably missing what this prominent pastor was trying to teach us, probably something about humility, bought the book and had it shipped this way I would make sure that I had my copy. I justified it to myself saying I'm a slow reader. But I just wanted that advantage. And then just to illustrate this book that he who exalts himself will be humbled, I got an email a few hours later from the church bookstore saying that they had secured a special discount And the book was available for half of what I paid for it on Amazon. <laughs> he who exalts himself will be humbled. <laughs> now, my pride cost me $10 in that instance. But pride can and often does cost way more than that. Pride can hurt our marriages and our families when we put our own hobbies and personal wants in the top seat and our family's needs in the back. Our pride can hurt our own relationship with God when we feel that the reason why God's taking us to heaven is because of what we've done. Pride can damage ministries, damage relationships. This is something that God wants to rescue us from. So what is the step two in humbling ourselves? 
First, we had to be honest with ourselves about who we are. And the second part of humbling ourselves is rejoicing in who Christ is. We can only worship one thing. And as one great book on worship was titled, You Are What You Worship. If we worship ourselves, looking out for number one, after our own agenda, that's all we're going to get is more of ourselves. But when we worship Christ, when we remember what he has done, with how highly exalted he is, and how much he has humbled ourselves for us, then it's going to extract that pride right out of you. You're going to become more and more like him. And when you come to Christ, taking that least seat won't even be seen as a sacrifice for you. Because you will have far more than any chair can ever grant you. And on those times, if we're honest with ourselves, that chair will sparkle again. And we'll want to have that chair again, whatever it is. We remember who we are. We remember who Christ is. Remember what he has done for us and worship him. And then all things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would extinguish that pride that's in our hearts. Do whatever it takes so that we might be humbled. Lord, I pray for those who are here that they would come to you. They can't deal with your, their pride on their own. But I pray that you would take it from them and that you would help them to see that they need you not turning over a new leaf. And I ask that they would find faith in you even today. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.